Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of the Grateful Dead. This is episode four, Without a Net. As you know, this is the last episode covering our box set and the last live album-centric episode. So thanks for taking this journey with us so far. This episode, both in the podcast and in the record form on your shelf, covers more time than any other in our box, since it covers the years from 1980 to 1990. And I think when people saw the list of these titles in our box, these two titles were the ones that got the most, uh, I guess, eyebrow raising from Deadheads because they are stylistically divergent from each other and they're very stylistically divergent from the rest of the albums in this box. But as you'll hear here, uh, that divergence is ultimately what makes the Dead important because unlike a lot of the bands of their era, the Dead never really stopped changing. Their songs didn't sound the same because the dead themselves weren't the same. And there's some beauty when you listen to that evolution of time, skill, composition, and their mood. We start this episode with Reckoning, an album recorded during the band's 1980 tours where they played two sets, one acoustic and one electric. This album covers the acoustic set, and within, you hear the band's history come to the forefront. You get traces of the folk and bluegrass that first made Jerry Garcia into a music obsessive. This is where, me personally, I became really in awe of the Dead as a band. Prior to this whole experience, I definitely did not expect to be bowled over by an acoustic Dead album. And now this very well might be my favorite album in the box. So to start, here's me talking Reckoning with David Lemieux. So Reckoning, for me, was sort of like the gateway into live dead like that was for whatever reason i decided to start there when i started uh you know was was aware that i was going (laughs) to be making this podcast and i guess like i want to know the the thought process that you know why do an acoustic live set and live live album for them well reckoning is a is a is a very interesting record in the grateful dead's uh canon um and an interesting era so 1980. It's the 15th anniversary of the Grateful Dead. You know, most bands don't make it that long. So here they are, 15 years. They've been around since 65. And in the summer of 1980, they they celebrated the 15th anniversary with, you know, a couple of shows in Boulder, Colorado at a stadium at Folsom Field um, and one in Arizona. So they did this little three-show thing. Then they went to Alaska at this, played a little high school auditorium that was a couple thousand people. But aside from that, they really didn't do anything to mark the, the 15th anniversary. And so later in the year... Uh, Bill Graham uh, d- decided, and John Schur on the East Coast, decided to book the Grateful Dead into the Warfield Theater in San Francisco for three weeks, and then another week and a half at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. And uh, it was ostensibly to mark the 15th anniversary of the Grateful Dead, but 1980 was also the 10th anniversary of the Dead in 1970, which was Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. 
and the acoustic mm-hmm. Grateful Dead. Now, in 1970, uh, the first half in particular, but throughout the year, really, um, when the Grateful Dead were touring in 19... Um, 1970 they were doing what was called an evening with the grateful dead where they would open up with an acoustic set and then they then the new riders of the purple sage which was a kind of i don't want to call it a grateful dead spin-off band but jerry was the um was the pedal steel player and mickey played a lot of drums with them uh then it would be a new rider set and then the dead would come out and play a two or three hour electric set so that was kind of the format of this program called an evening with the grateful dead in 1970 so in 1980 when they did these you know basically uh, five weeks worth of shows in, in san francisco and new york um they decided what they were going to do was open every night with a 45 minute acoustic set. The dead had not played acoustically in 10 years since 1970. Um, they'd done like one show in 1978 as a benefit, but otherwise they hadn't done anything like that. So it was a really, really big, uh, big thing. So the dead opening up with, uh, you know, a 45 minute acoustic set and then doing two full electric sets, um, full blown, uh, typical grateful dead electric sets, uh, typical of what they would have done in that era, which is to say, uh, about an hour and change first set and then an hour and a half to two hour second set, sorry, second and third set at this point with the acoustic. Mm -hmm. And from that they decided, well, you know, we're doing this, let's record. We, they hadn't done an album in a couple of years, um, a a live album. The last live album had been, uh, steal your face recorded in 1974, and then, of course, they did Terrapin Station and Shakedown Street. And then early 1980, they put out an album called uh, Go to Heaven, um, another studio record. But they hadn't done a live album in some time. So they decided to record all of these shows, the three weeks of shows in uh, in San Francisco and the week and a half in New York, record them to 32 tracks. So they took two 16-track machines and synced them up and and had 32 tracks to record to because they wanted to have you know every drum and every instrument every vocal have their own track Mm -hmm. and some audience tracks so they did these recordings of all three sets each night and from that became yeah it was it's a they're incredible recordings and the incredible clarity and they also um the last three nights of the runs uh in a radio city musical um which was uh the october 29 30th and halloween um they also shot those on video so they ended up with a home video as well um but the the audio was the key here and they decided they would do two live double records from these runs of shows, an acoustic double record. Again, the dead hadn't played acoustic in 10 years. It was a real throwback to 1970 and being the 15th anniversary, it was a big thing. Um, so they did the acoustic record and then they also did a, a, the electric record, which was dead set, which is, you know, another terrific record um, with the focus being songs that they, uh, they hadn't really put on live albums before. Um, the uh, reckoning to me is is the really interesting one because it's a lot of mm-hmm. songs that the dead you know some songs they they had played electrically through the years songs like cassidy and bird song and then you've got a song like ripple that the dead hadn't played in nine years they hadn't played acoustically ever so um here they ended every single first set that was it you know we talk about how the dead have this roving re- uh, repertoire where they can play anything on any given night the one thing the, the one time I can point to in the Grateful Dead's entire history where they played the same song every night was the acoustic sets in 1980 when they did, uh, they ended every acoustic set with Ripple. And so that's what you get wow. ending this one as well. Um, but you do get a lot of these songs that were a part of the Grateful Dead's live repertoire electrically 
done in these beautiful acoustic arrangements. And then a mm-hmm. lot of songs that really throw back to, you know, Jerry's bluegrass playing in 1962, 63, um, and the folk stuff they were doing in 64 mm-hmm. and Mother McCree's. So they were really giving a throwback to the Grateful Dead even before the dead. Um, and then a, again, a throwback to the 1970 acoustic sets from a decade earlier. So th- there was a lot mm-hmm. going on. And so they recorded this album that I don't think, you know, when, when they played acoustically, you know, Deadheads, the dead in 1978, 79, 80, were an incredibly powerful live band. They were most certainly not an acoustic band and i remember uh right. hearing this album for the first time and i said wow that's not what i expected from the grateful dead in 1980 i knew working man's dad i knew american beauty but i certainly didn't expect live grateful dead in 1980 to be acoustic dead right yeah i think the thing that's what you you hit upon that uh, i picked up on right away too like the the guy that sort of made me sort of scramble what i think about the dead is actually this guy jeff kolath he manages the stacks museum in memphis mm. and we were just talking about something like about you know stack stuff and then he said you know oh and i'm listening to dead tapes all the time and i was like you know, what do you get out of dead tapes? The thing that he said was you listen to the dead and you can hear like all of American music like filtered in. It's like, there's a little bit of jazz, there's folk, there's jug band, there's rock and roll, there's blues. There's like literally everything filtered through these guys. And I feel like reckoning was the record that made me realize that because you listen to it. And like you said, there's like, you know, old folk standards in the middle of this that you're not hearing on other dead records or even like really records from anybody other than like Dylan, basically, you know, that like, exactly. Yeah. That you're getting this like weird filtering of the history of American music as rendered like through the grateful dead. Well, that's it. And you know, the dead brought a little bit of um, everything into a quite a bit of everything. And that goes for both. They, uh, they all knew a lot about a lot of different types of music, but they all had their specialties. So, you know, you know, Jerry came at it with uh, as a bluegrass banjo picker. That's where Jerry started. He was a bluegrass banjo (laughs) guy and Phil an avant-garde composer who, you know, by happenstance, Jerry said, Hey, I want you to play bass in my band. Uh, And Phil's like, but, okay, cool, but I don't know how to play bass. He goes, you'll learn, you'll learn. And then, you know, you got the folky Bob Weir and you got the R&B Bill Kreutzmann and you got the true blues man of Pigpen. And then later you got a, you know, a rudimentary um, drummer of uh, uh, Mickey Hart, who, you know, is, a, is an incredibly talented percussionist. Um, and, you know, so they mm-hmm. all add these elements um, to the Grateful Dead sound. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing that, you know, people ask me sometimes, people who really know nothing about the dead, they'll say, well, what kind of music is that band you work for? And I say, well, and I, I'm taken aback a bit because I'm like, well, it's kind of a little bit of everything. You know, there's a lot of blues mm-hmm. and there's uh, folk and country and Western and there's jazz and there's clear straight up rock and roll and there's R&B. There's a little bit of everything. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. And it all goes together very authentically. And that's the thing. They weren't trying to create anything. They just brought their personalities into that music. And that's how we get what we get. Yeah. And the fact that that can be so like, you know, me as a layman, I can like immediately notice that on an acoustic <laughs> live album seems like really remarkable that like that alone speaks to that, that characteristic of the band yep. that like, it's so easy to see that on this record. I, I totally agree. Yeah. 
Cool. Um, so what are some good, like, you know, things to listen for, for people on reckoning? Uh, like, what are oh, some parts of that that you can think of? There's so much. Um, okay. The, to me, my favorite song on, I, I mean, a few of them. Um, I love deep Ellum and dark hollow. Um, I love the races on and monkey and the engineer because I love listening to Bob Weir tell a story and monkey and the engineer, uh, old Jesse Fuller song, um, it's a song that is such a good story and Bobby delivers it so well. And the band playing acoustic under him, including Bob on acoustic guitar is, is I just, it's so magnificent. Um, but I love that. But then the, there's a couple songs on here that really have kind of big jams as much as you can acoustically. And one is Cassidy where Jerry gets to have quite a bit of space to do some really interesting acoustic jamming. Um, and then you've got bird song, which is a song that the dead brought into the repertoire in 1971. It was on Jerry's first solo record in 72 and the dead played it pretty consistently 71, 72, 73, and then they dropped it and it was never seen again. And then they brought it back in the acoustic arrangement. So the acoustic versions of Birdsong here on, on Reckoning and, and during that run of shows was the first time the dead had played Birdsong in seven years. And when they had last played it, it had been a an electric song with big, big jam and big spaciness and really incredible jam vehicles. Uh, when they brought it back, it it still was a huge jam vehicle acoustically, but you know, with acoustic instruments, you're not going to blow the roof off a big arena, but you certainly are mm -hmm. in a little theater. And then a month after these shows, when the dead went out on tour in November of 1980, after the acoustic sets were all done, then they started playing it again electrically. So I, I you know, the repertoire definitely benefited from these shows because they did bring a few songs uh, into the repertoire. The Race is On and Deep Ellum kind of made a, a return a little sporadically, but they were back in the repertoire. And then you have a song like uh, China Doll, China it all on here where brent midland plays a harpsichord and you know what rock and roll bands that are this powerful you know the grateful dead like i say in 1978 to 80 they were a bona fide arena rock band like they would really blow the roof off the place and yet you've got the band now playing with a harpsichord and doing it beautifully so china doll was another one of these songs that um had been dropped from the repertoire but then it came back in 1980 with the acoustic ones and then it was pretty much back for good Again, not played very much, but back electrically. And the Dead never played acoustically again after this. This this is it. These five weeks of shows in, in since 1970 to 95, they never went back to playing acoustically again. And uh, I think they really had fun with it. And that's the thing you can tell that they're having mm -hmm. fun going back to the roots of it. Um, you know, Billy and Mickey are playing like like a tom or a bongo. Um, they certainly don't have their drum kits. They're just sitting right there in front of the stage with the other guys. Uh, Phil was the one playing electric because he played an electric bass, but it was turned way down. He wasn't like dropping what we call Phil bombs and shaking the foundation, but you could certainly hear the melodies he was playing, which was just beautiful. And Brent on uh, piano where, you know, he would... With the dead, he was playing primarily uh, Hammond B3 organ and some electric keyboards, uh, never grand piano. Um, at these shows, he played the piano and, like I say, the harpsichord. So it was uh, it was a really cool batch of, of shows. And I think that this album, I mean, I've listened to all of the shows um, that exist from uh, all of the tapes that exist from these shows, and they certainly um, they nailed it. Uh, there wasn't there's not much I would have uh, there's nothing I would have changed I, again. 
Um, I still, people ask me, oh, do you have a good deep alum or a good, you know, races on or whatever it is. And it's generally, I'll go to reckoning for it. And again, hmm. it sounds great, but also the performances are A plus. And it's, a, it's another similar situation to, um, to Europe 72, where the band, in particular, Jerry and his recording uh, engineers, that's Dan Healy and Betty Cantor Jackson, um, they spend a heck of a lot of time after these shows listening and, and, and making notes and finding the best versions and the best sequences to, you know, the sequences, I think, largely tried to replicate uh, the sequence of a show, an acoustic set, but it was, it was really about getting the very best performances on there, which is why I think, um, you know, a two see a two LP set is, is definitely the way to go because each of the sets at about 42 minutes uh, would have definitely fit uh, on, on one LP, but they wanted to get a lot of music on there. So they, they went through the, the 22 shows or however many it was and chose the very best material. We end your VMP Anthology box set with Without a Net, the 1990 album recorded during the band's 1989 tour of American football stadiums. In 1987, the band became the most unlikely MTV stars, maybe of all time, as the video for Touch of Grey introduced them to an entirely new generation of listeners, all of whom wanted to experience the psychedelic 60s for themselves. This led to the band playing in enormous venues where Without a Net was recorded. It could be easy as a cynic to look back and see this tour and this live album as, like most normal live albums, a way to capitalize on all the new fans seeing the band. But the surprising part as a new listener was listening to how evolved these songs have gotten, and that the dead were still playing incredibly 25 years into their career, which is not something you could say for most bands. Sure, you might hear them play trucking, but it wasn't going to sound like it does on their record, or the last time you saw them, or it does on previous live albums. It's impossible not to admire that quality, that constant, always changing quality that the dead had, which is what I talked to David Lemieux about here. The final album in the box and the final album we'll talk about here is Without a Net. And this comes after uh, an interesting time for the dead because I think, you know, opposite basically every band that they started with, like their most, you know, famous period, if like you're, you know, gauging them being famous by being publicly, you know, like on MTV and that kind of thing, it happens for them in the late 80s that like, you know, Touch of Grey is being played on MTV and they are now like touring football fields instead of playing, you know, arena rock. So I guess like what, what was the, what did it like look like for the band to suddenly be this like huge deal? You know, you know it's interesting that, uh, you know, in 1987, uh, when In the Dark came out, and they'd, they'd had a pretty good run the previous couple of years. You know, Jerry got sick in 86, and they had to take six months off. He, he went into a diabetic coma. Um, and then they came back in late 86. They were playing extremely well in the summer, in the spring of 87. Then the summer of 87, along comes uh, both the Dylan and the Dead Tour, like you say, playing NFL football stadiums, and also the massive, massive success of In the Dark. So these two things happen. And then the rest of 87 was was really good. Um, you know, the I 
I think the band, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, success is something that I think anybody likes for the good things that come with success. But the bad things are, is that you don't get to play in front of 3000 people again, in mm-hmm. a small theater, you don't get to have, you know, the nuances of that, you are no longer have any anonymity, uh, wherever you go. Um, so, you know, 87 was, a, I think, a, a blessing and a curse for the Grateful Dead. As a deadhead, um, I got on the bus before 87, but I didn't start going to shows till 87. So I got to see in, on the spring of 87, the very tail end of the dead before they got there in the dark popularity. And I got to watch it explode on the summer 87. I saw a bunch of those shows fall 87, 88, I thought was an okay year. Spring 89, I thought was outstanding, really great shows, much better than 1988. I found. And that's when in the summer of 1989, that's when the Grateful Dead started recording for what would eventually become without a net. The dead had the uncanny ability to, you know, not only, um, they, they knew when they were playing well, and that meant it's time to record an album. Now, I'm sure that most live albums were done for commercial reasons, which is to say you owe the record company an album. You have to put product out because the mm-hmm. record company demands it. But the Dead would record shows when they knew they were playing well. And it wasn't the, I don't think it was the opposite where they were recording, so we therefore had to play well. I think it was the opposite where they were playing well and they figured, well, hey, we're playing really well right now. Uh, maybe now is the time to record an album. And that's why the Dead have so many multi-track tapes that were produced, were recorded for live albums that happened to be also exceptional shows because they were recorded during an era where there was a consistent greatness, just like Europe 72, uh, the Fillmore East 1971 that became Skull and Roses, all of that Warfield Radio City stuff. It's not all great, but there are some really good shows in there. Um, and then likewise, from June, late June of 89, through April of 90. So nine months, they recorded, I'd say 80% of their shows. There's only a couple of three night runs where they didn't record, but they recorded everything to multi-track tape. They had a recording truck that did 24 track recordings. It would pull up at the venue and John Cutler, who had been working with the dead for many years, he produced in the dark with Jerry. He worked on dead set reckoning, been around the dead scene for a long time. He was in charge of recording all of these shows that would ultimately become without a net. Now, since then, we've released many other of these shows as either individual show releases or compilations or or videos with the multi-track audio. But where it all started was without a net. And it's an interesting album because in in 87, they put out In the Dark. 89, they put out Built to Last uh, on Halloween, which would prove to be the Dead's final studio record. And then right before Europe in 1990, uh, the Grateful Dead released um, Without a Net. Um, So it's an interesting time for the Dead because Brent Midland, the Dead's longtime keyboard player for over a decade, he passed away in the summer of 90. So by the time the album came out, Brent was gone. And uh, Vince Welnick was now the keyboard player. The Dead were heading to Europe. This was their new album to turn the Europe fans on. with. We didn't even know that we, Deadheads, didn't even know this album was really in the works. And I remember getting a call from a buddy saying, oh my God, the Dead have a new record. It's a live record and it's incredible. It's a bunch of shows we were at. I was seeing 20 or 30 shows a year in 89, 90. So I saw most of these shows that that were the recordings on this album. And I remember, you know, calling this local record store in Ottawa, Canada on Dalhousie Street. And I called them up. I said, oh, hey, any chance you have it? Yeah, yeah, we got, we have it on CD. So I raced down there on my bike, picked it up and I got it. And I just, I couldn't believe it was all these versions of songs I'd seen. And the dead were playing 
extremely well in 8990 to the point that I you know when I started working for the dead a little over 20 years ago and Bob Weir would come into the studio with his bands and he would be rehearsing for a tour with let's say Rat Dog which was his big band in in the late 90s through the early 2000s and and Bob would come in and say, oh, hey, I want to teach the band these five songs to bring on the road, these five dead songs. Could you make them CDs of these five songs and please give them uh, summer 89, fall 89 versions? And and Bob, for him to specifically remember 15 years later how good they were playing on that tour. So if he wanted Ramble on Rose and Samson and Delilah and songs like that, he would always ask me for a uh, a summer, a, a, this version, the, the, the without a net version of The Grateful Dead. And they were playing at a, an exceptionally high level, and they were also playing a consistently great level. That was the other, I think, very important part with the dead at this time was how incredibly consistent they were, where not every night was a great night, but more often than not, it was. And that that's not what you could say for a lot of other times when they had incredibly great shows, but not on maybe the consistent level um, mm-hmm. where every night you could count on being something very special. We did... Um, this, the the spring tour of 1990, which uh, quite a bit of it is represented on without a net, um, we ended up releasing two box sets from spring 90, all 14 shows. Actually, it was more like, I think, 16 or 18 shows, but a couple had already been released. But we did a, a six-show CD bo- six show, um, box set and then a eight-show box set um, from the spring 90. And we don't generally put out complete runs like that unless it's consistently great. And that's why Europe 72 would get that, uh, the July 1978 tour. Otherwise, it's a lot more curated because you don't get eight great nights in a row or 16 great nights in a row. Spring 90, you did. Yeah. And so like sound-wise, I think you can tell that things are a little bit different. And it's interesting to like listen to the stuff that's on Europe 72 that then, you know, 16, 17 years later is, you know, gone through hundreds of shows uh, to the version that you hear, you know, on Without a Net. And I think, like, especially, like, the China Cat, China Cat Sunflower, I Know You Rider, uh, you know, just the way that that evolved, I think, uh, as somebody who is not as well-versed on the show, it's just, like, being able to, like, look at these two albums and, like, see the evolution of that is like a special thing that the dead also have that nobody else has. You know? I totally, I, I totally agree is that, uh, you know, you do get to see that. And, and likewise, you know, I was just thinking that, uh, the box set also includes the dead's 1973 studio record, wake of the flood. And there are a couple of wake of the flood songs on here. You get uh, well, a few, actually, you get Mississippi half step uptown Tootaloo. It's on, it's a live version on, uh, uh, without a net, you get let it grow, which was a very, very big part of, um, of wake of the flood. Uh, Bob's weather report suite. It's the, the 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 bigger part of uh, Bob's weather report suite on Wake of the Flood, and then you also get Eyes of the World in probably what's considered one of the greatest live performances the Dead did in their last you know five or ten years, and that's the one of course with Branford Marsalis from uh, a Nassau Coliseum in March of 1990. Um, so you get some really exceptional uh, songs from a great era, but you also get to compare them to like you say, you see the development. Um, those are three songs that were on a great album, great studio record that is so great it's in this box set but here you get to hear them in their live setting from 17 years later and, and likewise you know we just spent uh, a little while talking about bird song from uh, reckoning 
here you get an incredible version of birdsong. Um, so it's it's pretty wild um, to get to hear the development of the Grateful Dead in in different contexts. Yeah, and it's it's remarkable that you know it's twenty years, I guess, separate the the four live albums, and that they are that consistently good over twenty years and different and different and uh, exciting in different ways. Uh, I think, I think really comes across, across these four albums that you helped us pick. Uh, And this is what I find most exciting about the Grateful Dead. I remember some, uh, a friend of mine, good friend, uh, Jeff in film school in Montreal 25 years ago, you know, I was a deadhead and I, I think he knew a lot of deadheads in his life. And he goes, let me ask you a question. He said, how many versions of Sugar Magnolia can you possibly listen to? And I just, I looked at him a little incredulously. I said, I mean, all of them. And to me, it's because they're all so different. And maybe, you know, a couple of versions in 1973 on back-to-back nights aren't that different. But when you hear them through the eras, and like you say, these these four live albums in here are separated by 20, 21 years, and they're remarkably different. I can't think of music, not Grateful Dead music, but music that's more different than Live Dead to Europe 72, to the acoustic stuff of Reckoning, to the electric powerhouse of uh, Without a Net. And yet it is all so very clearly Grateful Dead music. It's, you know, it's, it's, there's, it's, it's the same people making the same music, but they grew. They didn't, um, you know, some bands, you could listen to a live show from 1970, 80, 90, and 2000. And, you know, these are bands that might've had a big album in 69, 70. And, you know, we, you could call them almost a nostalgia act. The Dead most certainly weren't that ever. They were constantly growing, constantly redeveloping or developing their sound. Maybe they weren't even redeveloping. They were just developing their sound. And it was just a constant thing. And that's what allows you to have this 21-year span that you're hearing and hear of live albums and hear that be remarkably different and yet always remarkably great is that there's no waning. There's no, well, you know, this is nothing compared to that. It's not true. It's incredible music. It's just very different. Like, it, look, Reckoning versus Live Dead, I can't imagine two more different things. You, you think of the electric, right. psychedelic, primal dead of the Dark Star or the Eleven on Live Dead, and then you think of China Doll with Brent Midland playing a harpsichord on uh, Reckoning. I cannot think of more different music, and yet it is so clearly 100% Grateful Dead music. And that, to me, is the, the thrill of the dead, is that on any given day, any given hour, I can put on different Grateful Dead music and be just as thrilled with it. One of the more intriguing things I've learned about dead fandom during the making of this podcast is that dead fandom looks differently for basically every person. There is no right or wrong way to be a fan of the dead. For this segment, I called up Jesse Jarno, who, amongst other things, wrote the book Heads, a biography of psychedelic America, a book about how psychedelics impacted everything in American life, to talk about dead fandom. Jesse tells me about all the different ways there is to be a dead fan and how being a fan of the dead is ultimately holding a mirror up to them and seeing yourself. My dad, I remember, had this book called Heidi's Horse. I don't remember who it was by or someone named Heidi. Um, but it was a, and she grew up to be a professional artist and she drew pictures of horses starting when she was like six or something like that. And this book 
is a complete chronology of like her sketchbooks where it's like you see her drawing a horse at age six and you see okay. her drawing a horse at age 10 and 15 and like every age and they turn into this like you, you just see the evolution of it and i remember like looking at like i'm pretty sure he had like and go sketchbooks some like reproduced sketchbooks and i was i remember being really fascinated by that like hmm. just, just seeing these ideas kind of go from like you know and and his own my dad's own sketchbooks just sort of watching his own thing kind of like turn turn into something else um and i, I was pretty you know that was fascinating to me and and i think the dead were a way to kind of like tap into that um sure I, you know and even before the dead i was like like i said i was a dylan fan so i'd listen to like the bootleg series that had just come out mm -hmm. uh, that was like that right. came out in like 91 or 92 so and there was a an essay in that that kind of talked about like how dylan fans would like compare different versions and you know different drafts and like i was there's like a, a like a i don't think i could have put it at like i don't think i would have called it scholarly but i think there was a little bit of that like romance of like like looking closely at something and discovering secrets um Right. That was, that was, you know, that I did not get out of baseball card collecting. That definitely came out of like, you know, probably being around my parents. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, and I, I mean, you're talking to somebody like I, I have that too. Like I, I obsessively have been trying to get every record released by stacks. So that yeah. isn't like, like every like random, you know, gospel album that I will listen to maybe once, you know, that like, but it's like, it's the, you know, it's the collect them all thing. I have that too. It's just, it's like, it's a thing that I have noticed in every person I've talked to about the dead is like, it's like once the, you're pushed over the edge, it's like, you are like, you are like an amateur archeologist for the dead like right. as part of being you know as part of and not even an amateur in your case i mean you're you know doing podcasts and stuff but it's like okay so that's another that's okay so that's another thing about the dead that okay they pushed themselves like you know in the, in these early years like really 65 75 they whatever they did and and when i say they i mean largely jerry but everybody they did all the way like jerry was a folk music freak you know he's a folk music musician like a really hardcore musician in the early mm -hmm. 60s like we're talking 1961 basically to the point where the dead go electric in 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 uh early 65 but he was really insanely serious about it like you look at the people that he was interacting with that jerry garcia was interacting with when he was like in the folk scene and you you get people like Neil Rosenberg, who is who is like the preeminent bluegrass scholar and Bill Monroe scholar. Um, and you get people like uh, uh, Jody Stecker, who's an amazing musician, but was also doing uh, field recordings. And the dead learned "We Bid You Good Night" from a field recording that Jerry's friend had made in the Bahamas, um, and and who went on and is, you know to be a world class musician. Um, you see Jerry, you know, Jerry, like hanging out at the Berkeley folk festival, like going to see, like, um, going to see like the Georgia, the Georgia Island sea singers. Like, you know, he's sitting there in the front row. He is like so obsessed with this stuff. And that extends to every aspect of the dead, you know, his guitar, you know, Garcia's guitar playing, Robert Hunter's lyrics are so, you know, such a special part of the grateful dead's world. And they draw from such a deep well, like, uh, that, you know, to me, I'm still finding resonances that I'm almost sure that he was aware of that I that just never occurred to me before. Um, you know, things like that. And then that applies to, like, you know, their approach to instrument 
building and and sound systems and just and and album art and and right down to the point where they start their own record label in the 70s so they can control the actual pressings of the record <laughs> like uh, Betty Betty Cantor who people know for making the, the the live tapes that are called the Betty boards was apparently an amazing mastering engineer like would actually go to the studio and physically make the masters for the Grateful Dead label for the Grateful yeah for Grateful Dead records and for you know, the Debs records that weren't on Grateful Dead records. And when they started their own label, she like personally went to the mastering plant and like made sure, you know, like, cause like Warner, or I guess early seventies, Warner Brothers pressings are kind of on that, like the, that sort of flimsier feeling micro groove mm-hmm. vinyl, I guess is what it's called. And the dead were not into that. And I don't, you know, I don't think they were making like 180 gram pressings. I don't know. I don't know what, uh, what Grateful Dead, what Grateful Dead records were, but they were, they were, there was like this level of obsession and quality to, to every aspect of what they were doing. And that really extends to the fandom. And there's, Mm -hmm. there's a, you know, like heads get just so into whatever part of headdom they're into, you know, if it's making, you know, making tie dyes, that's another, you know, they're uh, Courtney Pollock, who's the, who was who made the stage tie dyes for the dead was like the groundbreaking tie dye guy in like the whole world <laughs> in 1970 71 like they were right there for all of the you know and Owsley was making who made the acid was like the best acid yeah it was, yeah. yeah the premier you know the first basically premier LSD underground um underground LSD chemist it's so that reflects in the tapers. It reflects in, like I said, in people making you know tie dyes and T-shirts. It just reflects in the obsessiveness that people put on the dead. That they that they find like a mirror for whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever like full on obsessive tendency you have as a fan. You could probably find a mirror for that in the dead. And mm-hmm. and I think that 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 works for the internet age uniquely. Yeah. And, I mean, not only that, but like, you know, that, that's a, a, yet another element is that the Dead's fans were like pioneer internet people precisely because <laughs> it was a place to share information about the Dead. Like there are Deadheads online as early as like 1973, even before that, at like Stanford in, in the, there was a Stanford PDP-10 mainframe that was like connected to like the 10 nodes on the internet, whatever the internet was in 1972. You know, mm-hmm. there's a Stanford node and an MIT node and, you know, probably a few others. And at least Stanford and MIT, you know, nodes, they were deadheads. <laughs> they were like at the Stanford lab. They were, they were like trading. They were they had a song lyrics file. They, they were trading tapes. They had like a ride board to get to shows. There was a pot sale between the, the deadheads at the Stanford <laughs> lab and the guys at the MIT lab. It was like already kind of like fully formed in some way mm-hmm. by that point before um, the internet was even formed they were the deadhead internet community was formed yeah yeah, yeah exactly like like the the third i think the first usenet group that was for music was just rec.music or it was or no it was net.music um and became rec music later and then there was like net.music beatles and then the third one was net.music.gdead this was like 19 19- I want to say 79 or 80 or 81, somewhere, somewhere in there. Like, yeah, it's just, you can, and you can, you can look all this stuff up. You can like see what deadheads were posting in 19, you know, in the early eighties 
And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's just amazing to me. Like that you can get like these first, these like firsthand unmediated show reports, just as like a historical source. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's like, you can, like you said, the holding the mirror up, like if you're interested in technology and the grateful dead, you can like do a deep dive on like their impact on technology. You can like, yeah. And not, and and the social networks that that caused, like you can find the Deadhead networks in Silicon Valley in the eighties and nineties, because there were, you know, they were collaborating, you know, sometimes, sometimes across companies. Like there were Deadheads, kind of at the very beginning of the uh, the freeware and the shareware movement. This kind of like open source software thing, and that really they, like some of the ones that I've talked to, like said almost explicitly that it came out of this idea that you know. That, that, that it came out of the idea of like exchanging tapes and exchanging information. And it was just all this stuff was kind of like one big, big culture. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you, yeah, like it's, you see all like the, these intellectual ideas that kind of inform the dead. You kind of see them inform lots of other things as well. Music and technology. So, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Like I think probably there's, you know, probably some of the dead's libertarian tendencies get mutated into some, darker territories once you kind of push them to their fullest extent in Silicon Valley. But, you know, with the dead, it was, I, I don't think it was quite as harmful as, as, as some of that stuff when, when you see it extended there. But, um, yeah, it's, once you start looking, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And, and so just as a test, when I get into other artists, you know, deep into other artists, it's like, I do kind of like, I kind of like think, well, if I was a deadhead, what are all the different things that I could like, what are the different directions you can go from from like other artists, either old ones or new ones? Um, and some of the, some of them you really can go far. Like with you know the Velvet Underground, obviously there's stuff like you know the the right you know, the, the, the the way they came out of kind of the Warhol art culture and that kind of thing. But then there are other bands that you kind of look at, and it's like there's not that depth in the sense. And I'm you know maybe there is in the music. You know this isn't to say that the music of these bands isn't wonderful, but sometimes you. And I'm, I'm probably I'm using a, kind of a big straw man argument here, admit, admittedly. But sometimes you start pushing on a like looking for more about a band, and it's just like, oh, they're just a band that kind of came out of this scene where there were lots of bands, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And there's not <laughs> they there's not really like a driving thing that made that that kind of pushed them into a particular part of the culture or, or whatever. It was just like, but you know, that doesn't mean the music's not good. But there's right. just just be grateful that there's just something about. Yeah, like you can't you can't examine the sound system of every single artist or or you know and, <laughs> right. and, and, and not every artist even has that equivalent. Like like some are like it's just like not every artist is gonna like try to innovate beyond what they're putting on record, I think is kinda what I'm trying to say. I woke the day so that's it from me alone uh so i you know i think we'll we'll follow up more uh in the sixth and final episode of this podcast but i think doing these interviews has really uh you know given me an appreciation for the dead that i certainly did not have prior to this I had a outsider's appreciation, and I think as I've done these interviews and talked with people who are so enthusiastic about the dead, I 
have gotten like an insider's view of what deadheads and dead fandom looks like that I, at the very least, I completely understand it now. I get it. And I, I don't know that I necessarily would have thought that that would have happened here. I like, I get it. I, I, I could even see myself, you know, being super into the dead. And we'll, we'll talk about that more on the sixth episode of some of the things that, uh, alongside listening to the dead that Amelia and I have gotten into, um, over these last couple of months. But yeah, I think the, the person who recorded that intro episode, uh, was definitely a lot more skeptical of the dead than I have ended up. I, I think all of my skepticism has come down. A thing that I, you know, learned as as part of these interviews was that the the live albums are just a piece. There's a tier of of Grateful Dead fandom. So I'm starting to get into the shows. You know, that you start with the studio albums, then there's the officially released live albums, and then there's the shows. And I've started to dip my toe into the shows, particularly around, you know, live Europe 72 and Reckoning, where you can hear some of the, you know, the acoustic takes of of these songs. And I can hear differences now, which I did also did not think. I don't think at the beginning of this I would have really have, have noticed that much about the differences in the China Cat Sunflower and uh, I Know You Rider combo that appears on Without a Net and on Europe 72. I don't know that I, you know, would have cared or noticed the different <laughs> the different things that happen in there. And so I think, you know, at least as far as that's concerned this this podcast and this box has been a, a a success for me and it's been um been a really fun ride to have this excuse you know particularly at a time where i'm you know locked in my house basically 24 7 uh with coronavirus and to just be able to to like give myself over to the dead has been like a really welcome distraction. And I think that's what people get out of this that I was maybe missing. It's just like the giving yourself over to this all-consuming thing. It feels really good. And I'm, I don't know that I would feel comfortable uh, calling myself a deadhead at this point, but I'm, I'm really excited to talk with Amelia uh, about how her interviews have gone and you know, what her main takeaways from this experience are, because I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, I'm, I'm ready to make, I'm ready to be on the bus. I am, you know, I'm a deadhead, I guess. I feel weird saying that, but I think I'm, I'm into the dead at least. We can, we can leave it at that for now. This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast is executive produced, written, and hosted by Amelia Sutliff and me, Andrew Winnestorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder, with assistance from Jonah Grinder. This episode was recorded in my home office, so shout out to my dog Arthur for not barking during it. A special thanks to David Lemieux and Jesse Jarno for coming on to talk the dead with a relative newcomer to the bus. And remember, listen to more Box of Brain.